0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, Senior Pastor of St. Philip the Deacon, uh, which is privileged to put on these community events uh, called the Faith and Life Lecture Series. This is now um, the second in our 20th anniversary season. So again, welcome to all of you who are here uh, in the sanctuary, and I want to always, as, as always, welcome those of you who are joining us online as well. Um, And I I do like to ask, uh, if you don't mind, I can't see those of you at home, obviously, but those of you who are here, how many of you have never been to a Faith and Life uh, event before? Excellent, wonderful. Well, welcome, especially to you. We are really grateful for your presence. Um, As I mentioned, for 20 years now, we've been inviting uh, nationally and internationally uh, renowned speakers to come in and talk about how Christian faith is connected to different dimensions of everyday life. I will say a word about our speaker to introduce him in a second, but before I do that, I just want to give you a sense of the flow of the evening. After he comes up, uh, he'll talk for 35, 40 minutes, something like that, and then, as always, we will have an opportunity for what I pray will be a wonderful question and answer session, so those of you who are here in the house, uh, you're welcome to come up to one of the mics to my right and my left to ask a question at that point, so be thinking of that. Those of you at home... Um, you are also welcome to participate in that by sending an email to us at social at social at spdlc.org, or if you're watching this on the live stream on the Faith and Life uh, website, which is faithinlife.org, uh, you, you should see a box there uh, under faithandlifeorg slash live stream where you can also submit a question that will ask our speaker when we get to that point. Um, So our speaker tonight is unusual in a couple of ways as it relates to faith and life. As I mentioned, we've been inviting people here now for 20 years. All of them have been Christian. That's sort of the table stakes for this series. But the honest truth is the vast majority of them um, have been lay people. So they have been uh, doctors or writers or executives in the business or nonprofit world. Uh, Very few of them have actually been professional theologians. So he is different in that way. Uh, The other way he's different is that while this is a Lutheran church that hosts this series, and proudly so... Uh, as I was speaking to him before, we are here in, in the Twin Cities in sort of the epicenter of Lutheranism. And so when we began the series, we thought, well, people can probably find Lutheran speakers wherever they want in the Twin Cities. So we have sort of intentionally cast a very broad net in terms of the various traditions that our speakers come from. So while we have had some Lutherans in the past, uh, it's actually a minority. But as we were planning the 20th anniversary season, we thought, well, we should probably have at least one token Lutheran. So, <laughs> um, so we are so glad he's here. He's, uh, he, I mentioned before, he's an academic who specializes, uh, or his specialty is ancient languages. He taught for a number of years at Luther Seminary. Then he did a stint in the military because of his knowledge of ancient languages. Then he ended up coming back uh, to the seminary for a while. And just in the last year, he is the first ever um, executive director for faith and learning at Concordia College. I know we have some Concordia folks who were with him before this event. Welcome to you. OK, great. Um, and, uh, the, the, I always do like to say a little something off the beaten track in terms of the bio. So the other thing I will say before I invite him up, uh, I was asking him if there are any other quirky things about his bio. And one of the things he lifted up is that he is what was the word you used? Obsessed with bow hunting. So I don't know if he's going to talk about that or not, but we are so delighted he is here. Will you help me welcome Dr. Michael Chan? Thank <laughs>
1: Okay, good evening. It's so good to be here with you at St. Philip the Deacon. Uh, I have had a chance to spend time with some of the members here at, uh, in, in retreat spaces and in other spaces, and it is just such a delight finally to be here in the sanctuary space talking about a topic that will hopefully—well, I know we're Lutheran, so we may not be rolling in the aisles, but maybe, you know, sort of uh, laughing a little bit or moving the face a little bit. It might, it might work out. Um, <clears throat> I am always happy to play the role of the token Lutheran, <laughs> especially in a place like this. So thank you for that great honor. In fact, I I had a chance to look through the, the bulletin of, of other speakers that are offered, and I really hope that you all have a chance to check out some of these other events, because there are some really remarkable people. In fact, when I when I saw the list of people, I told Pastor Tim, I said, gosh, I feel a little bit insecure following on uh, Arthur Brooks, you know, <laughs> and then you've got Bishop Michael Curie, and, and uh, in fact, Cole Arthur. Riley is on your list of folks as well, and Cole Arthur Riley will be at Concordia too uh, this coming year, so uh, we obviously have good taste uh, uh, here in the room. Okay, so the, the topic tonight is the Bible's funniest stories. Now, I don't know what kind of, you know, faith you grew up in or what kind of uh, church you grew up in, but I have to imagine that when you heard words like Bible or holy scripture, or whatever it was, uh, you probably didn't have this reaction. <laughs> and for those of you who don't text, that means funny. <laughs> LOL means laugh out loud. But so this is like basically how my kids communicate with me these days. Is they take my wife's phone and then they just send me emojis all day long. I have long text threads just with pictures like this on my phone. But I have to imagine that most of you, like me, probably didn't have this in mind when you think about the Bible. But, you know, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, there is an appointed time for everything, a time for every affair under the heavens, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. My hope and prayer tonight is that tonight will be a time to laugh. We'll see. We'll see. If we get a couple out of you, then, uh, then I'm, I'm going to be pretty happy. Here's my goal for the night. Um, I'm going to talk, as as Pastor Tim said, for probably 35, 40 minutes. We're going to go through some really specific biblical texts, and then I want to make sure we have time for Q&A, so I'll be watching my clock uh, to make sure we have that. But here's my goal, that you will leave tonight believing that humor is an integral part of how the Bible talks about God, this world, and human life, and that humor is also the mark of a holy people who are loved by a God who delights over them with smiles, tears, and laughter. And so we're not just going to look at that stories that, uh, that are funny. We are going to look at that. But I also want us to consider that, that, that the joyful laugh that human beings, that we all of us have, is also somehow a reflection on the heart of God. That when God looks at each of us, God laughs, and loves and delights in who who we are as God's creatures. So that's my goal, at least uh, for the evening. Now, there are all kinds of humor in the Bible. And at the end of this talk, I'm going to recommend a book to you that does this a little bit more extensively. But tonight, I want to talk about three different types of humor. Irony, absurdity, and mockery. Those are going to be the three that we look at. And we're going to look at them uh, in three biblical books, we won't read the whole book. We don't have that much time. Um, the book of Jonah, Jonah the prophet, right? We'll look at the book of Esther, which I would say is the funniest book in the Bible. I think if you had a, kind of a spectrum of funny books... Uh, we would start with Esther and then sort of work from there, and then we'll look at Daniel, and then actually at the very end I'll tag in a little bit from Paul. Who could have thought that Paul would be humorous? Yeah, he's, not, he's not exactly the stand-up that I would, you know, com- that I would imagine. Let's talk about Jonah. Let me say something about perception, reality, and irony. Now, this was the only f- picture I could find uh, of Jonah. The problem with it is that, of course, Jonah was not swallowed by a whale. He was swallowed by a fish, but we'll, you know, leave, <laughs> leave it at that. It still gets the point across. But Jonah's one of these books that has so many afterlives. It's been told so many. I mean, what children's Bible does not have Jonah in it? And it's and uh, why, you know, it's such a terrifying story that you, you have this prophet that says no to God and then gets eaten by a fish and then barfed out, uh, <laughs> you know, onto the shore. And uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think, like, what, what lessons are we teaching our children by this? Um, uh, but, but in any case, so, so Jonah is one of these stories that, you know, has a, a big role in popular culture. A lot of people know what it is. Um, and, and, and a lot of people have maybe heard stories like it uh, in, in, children's, uh, you know, in children's accounts. But, but here's the deal about Jonah that often gets missed, I think. Jonah is a book riddled with exaggeration, irony, and absurdity. Now, you might start to get a little bit worried, and you would say, whoa, I don't usually associate the truth with things that are exaggerated or ironic or absurd. So what are you actually saying here? Part of what I'm trying to say is, um, in, in the history of the interpretation of Jonah, I think oftentimes we have got caught up in the question, like, did it happen? As, uh, as one, of my, uh, one of my favorite professors, Mark Thronfite, used to say, is this the tale of a whale or a whale of a tail? <laughs> Which one is it? The point I want to make tonight, I don't necessarily want to adjudicate that argument, the point I want to make tonight is that even though Even though Jonah is filled with exaggeration, irony, and absurdity, it has something truthful and important to say to us about God, about the world, and especially about about God's love for sinners. So even though it has these things, it can still be true. Even though it is a book filled with absurdity, exaggeration, and irony. All right, here's the first point. Let's talk a little bit about exaggeration. The book of Jonah is a lot like Texas. (laughs) Wait for the (laughs) punchline. Everything's bigger. What do I mean by that? Okay, so here's the, the, look at this word here on the left. Yes. Um, Gadol. This is a Hebrew word. It means big, huge, something like that. Or or some people say the huge. I was like, where'd the H go? You know, put the H in. Huge. Um, gadol, Gadol means big. And it is, one of the, it is one of the words that is used frequently throughout the book of Jonah. So I'm going to give you a couple examples here. And, and the way that the book uses gadol, big or huge, is to, is, is to really to provide a kind of exaggeration. So everything, uh, so many things in Jonah are huge. Go at once, here I'm going to start at the top. I might even have a little laser. No, maybe not. Um, go at once to Nineveh. That's the, the city, the Assyrian city Jonah was supposed to go to and cry out against it for their, or it's a great city, it's a big city, it's a huge city. In fact, we'll learn later it's a city so big that it takes three days to walk across it, okay? So it's a great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. So this is Jonah's first call, right? And, and this is, Jonah hears this message and he says, I am out of here. I have nothing, I want nothing to do with that. I mean, one of the big questions of the book of Jonah is why? Why doesn't he want to do this? And there's a lot of debate about that. Why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? But, you know, the Ninevites weren't exactly the nicest, uh, the nicest of people uh, in Jonah's own time. In fact, the, the Ninevites were responsible for destroying the entire northern kingdom of Israel. So the, uh, after Solomon... The kingdom gets divided, right? You have the southern kingdom, David, the, king, the lineage of David based in Jerusalem, and then you have the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom gets utterly wiped out by the Assyrians. Uh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, so you might, you know, have some compassionate understanding for poor Jonah who didn't want to walk purposefully into the lion's den. So he runs away. Now, what's the second uh, part about big? But the Lord hurled Chucked is another way of saying it if you want to do it in a little more colloquial way. The Lord hurled a big storm. There it is, a giant storm upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the, sheep, the, shi- the ship threatened to break up, or it's literally the ship broke itself up, it threatened to, uh, to break itself to pieces. That might be another way to translate it. Okay. Uh, On to the next one. Then the men were even more afraid. Really, what it says is that they were, they were, they, uh, they were big afraid. It's kind of like the wooden. <laughs> they, they were bigly afraid, right? They, they had huge fears, right? They had big old fears. And they said to him, What is this that you have done? The, these, are the, uh, these are the sailors talking to Jonah. What have you done? Then, uh, let's go to the next one. But the Lord provided a big fish. There's the big thing again. Everything in Jonah is big. But the Lord provided a big fish to swallow up Jonah. Just think about, like, how many of you grew up watching the old Batman? The old, you know, like, boom, pow, you know, smack. And they would have the, the big, big exaggerated letters. And, and I don't know what it was about TV in those days. Some of you were around. You could tell me about that. Um, <laughs> but... but <laughs> But 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 the fight scenes, right? It's always like, woo, big swings, big exaggerated. It's sort of part of the campiness, right, of of the of, of, of how TV was done. But that's kind of how it is with Jonah. Everything's big. Big arcing punches, big words, big fish, big storms. So the Lord provides a big fish to swallow up Jonah. And this is when Jonah's going to go down on his deep, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea uh, it, it, uh, journey, down literally to the gates of death, because that's how they thought about uh, the, the afterworld in their own time, is that, uh, is, is that it was really down below. And so, okay, the Lord, or the, the Lord provides the big fish. He said to them, Jonah said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this big storm has come upon you. Okay, Nineveh was a very big city. In fact, it's, it's, it's a big city, and then it uses the word, in Hebrew it uses the word God to say something like, it's a God of a big city. You know how we use words like, Heck or hell, we say. It's a heck of a big thing. And the text here uses the word God to say it's such a big city. It's so big it's a God-sized kind of a city. That's how big this uh, this city was. It is exceedingly large. Three days' walk across. Lastly, the Lord appointed a bush. And made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was big happy. Jonah had big happies <laughs> about the bush. The only thing Jonah's happy about is his own comfort here. Now, here's the thing everything in Jonah is big except his heart and his compassion toward Nineveh. You know, God eventually, this is how the book of Jonah works. Jonah's supposed to go, and, and he, he gives a, sh- a sermon that's even shorter than Lutheran sermons. It's like five yards, it's like five words long. And yet, this his tiny little sermon is probably the most successful sermon in all of history. Because the entire city repents, all these Assyrians repent, and, 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 and they, they, they go so far in their repentance that they even put sackcloth on their animals. So it's like, you know, okay, it's not just that we're going to repent, we're going to make, you know, Fido and, and whatever. Our, you know, all, all the animals have to show that they also are sorry for, the, you know, the, for our wicked ways. So everything in Jonah is big and exaggerated except for his own sense of compassion for these people. And the, it's interesting, the book ends really with Jonah and God in a dialogue uh, 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 about why God is compassionate with them. God, uh, Jonah says, God, when, when God decides to forgive, you know, uh, forgive the Ninevites, Jonah says, kind of spitting out his mouth, he's like, God, I knew you were a God who was gracious and compassionate and full of mercy, and that's why I didn't want to come here in the first place. And look, that's exactly what happens. And, and Jonah is just sort of full of spite, right, for, for these people. So everything in Jonah is huge, except for his compassion for the uh, uh, for the people uh, of Nineveh, also everything in Jonah, everything in the book of Jonah, is obedient, except the prophet. And this is where the irony comes in. Because if you read the other prophetic books, you know books like Ezekiel, Weird Ezekiel, and and, uh, and Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Amos? Like, the prophets are the quintessentially obedient, right? That's part of why they're prophets. Because God can trust them to say what God wants them to say, not Jonah. (laughs) Everything in the book from the fish, to the storm, to the Ninevites, to the cattle that get the sackcloth on them, to the little worm that God appoints uh, uh, to, uh, to kill the plant that that, Jonah has, uh, that that God springs up for Jonah. Everything in, everything in Jonah is obedient except for the prophet. That's the irony part of it. I mean, you think, what is going on here? Everything in the book of Jonah is obedient except for the prophet. And so here we, we kind of see that uh, uh, this story is in many ways, it is ironic. It has tons of exaggeration. It is also in so many ways absurd. I think when people would hear about a prophet that would literally try to run away from God, the God of creation, they would think that that was a funny thing. Like, Jonah, what are you doing? Like, you're the the prophet of the God of creation, and you think that by buying a ticket to St. Cloud, you're going to, like, escape this? What are you thinking? How ridiculous. Through absurdity and irony and exaggeration, the book of Jonah depicts a God who is relentlessly and ridiculously faithful to Nineveh. A people so lost, God says, that they can't tell their right hand from their left hand. But this God is also faithful to Jonah, a prophet who is incapable of celebrating the mercy of God for a despised people. The absurdity of God's faithful and compassionate love are deeper than any ocean, farther than any corner of the earth, and larger than any sin. This is what I think the absurdity and the humor and the irony do for us in the book of Jonah. I've I've often thought that the book of Jonah... Yes, it's humorous, but it's, 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 humor is the vehicle to talk about the grace, love, and patience of God. Um, God. God sticks with Jonah till the end, and there's still no resolution at the end. It's not like Jonah, at the end, after God has shown all this mercy, finally says, oh, okay, God, I get it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to change my ways. No, Jonah stays stuck in his lack of compassion, and, but God is still there with him. Um, and, and, and God is with the Ninevites as well. The, the book of Jonah, for all of its humor, the humor is a vehicle to talk about and to demonstrate the, uh, the great love and patience of God. Okay, let's talk about Esther. Esther, okay. I love the book of Esther. It's also kind of a weird book too. You know, it's one of these, it's, it's, it's one of two books in the, in the Old Testament that doesn't even explicitly mention God. So interesting, right, that book, the book of Esther is this way. Um, but here's the first thing I have to say about Esther. There have been all kinds of movies made about Esther, right? Because it's like, you know, it's about romance and drinking and partying. And so, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of material to work with is what I mean to say. <laughs> the movies generally get it wrong. And they get it wrong because they are too serious. The mo- most of the movies get it wrong because they are way too serious. And they fail to recognize that this is meant to, This one is actually meant to be a roll in the aisles, laughing-and-crying book. It is meant to be this way. Now, um, there is a people who get this, and that's our Jewish siblings. How many of you have heard of the Jewish festival of Purim? Purim is sometimes how it's pronounced. Yeah, I see a couple of hands in there. If you don't know about it, go ahead and look it up. Um, but pu- really, the whole book of Esther is actually written to establish the festival of Purim. So the whole book sort of points toward this. Um, <clears throat> Purim is a Jewish festival <clears throat> in which they celebrate their deliverance from extermination under Haman. Haman is kind of the primary uh, villain in the book of Esther. And he really conspires to try and, um, <clears throat> to try and uh, uh, kill off all of the Jews because he's angry about um, uh, Esther's relative Mordecai. Okay, so it celebrates their deliverance from extermination under Haman, the book's villain. Purim involves mocking reenactments of the story of Esther, a carnivalesque atmosphere, people typically dress up, and often dress up in, uh, like men will dress up as women, women will dress up, there's cross-dressing that happens frequently in Purim. Um, Costumes and excessive drinking. In fact, the prescription is that one should drink so much that one can't tell the difference between right and wrong. Now, hope some of you are thinking, well, that's, that sounds like my college years, you know, but, um, but no, it's actually Purim, um, where, and, and the idea is, the idea is that uh, you know somebody like Haman, right, is is so morally corrupt that he cannot really tell the difference here but that's what that's what Purim is about it is like I say it's like carnival they, they reenact the book of they reenact the book of Esther often in ways that are ex- well they're usually very ex- extremely funny but often in ways that even comment on kind of contemporary culture as well but Purim is very interesting uh, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters when they practice Purim they get the comedic and tragic spirit of Esther they understand that it, is, that it is funny, but that like Jonah, it's in the humor. There is a message of God's faithfulness, but also a call to courage, right, that we see like in, in a, a figure like um, Esther or Mordecai. Okay, so here's what I want to do. Um, I want to provide a quick summary here, and then we're going to read some texts, just a couple of them, just from chapters one and two. So Esther is a book that blends dark humor mockery of the king, slapstick, and absurdity in a humorous but deeply serious drama about a God who works in hidden ways through the courageous actions of two Jews, namely Esther and Mordecai. Here's chapter one. This is going to set the stage. This happened in the days of Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus, this is a very strange way of talking about a Persian king's name. It is likely, I think, that that his name is intended to sound somewhat silly, and he is a silly character. Ashveros is, in fact, a fool. Um, and we'll see that kind of reinforced throughout these texts. So. The same Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. Kush is what we would call modern-day Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. This guy likes to party. There are banquets all throughout this book. In fact, this is part of Esther's cleverness, right? Because remember, how does she reveal... Who her victim was, who her victimizer was, she does it by luring Haman into a banquet, two banquets. And so Esther is very clever in that she is using things that the king loves in order to expose the threat to her and her people. The army, uh, okay, so he gives a banquet to all his officials and ministers. The army of Persian media, the nobles and the governors of the provinces were present while he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days in all. One half a year of partying? 180 days? But he's a real frat boy, And 180 days wasn't enough. So to cap it all off, when these days were completed, it's like you can't have 180 days without having a week of closure. Um, The king gave for all the people present in the citadel of Susa, great and small, a banquet lasting for seven days another week. We need another week. In the court of the Garden of the King's Palace. Now, this last part is very funny. Drinking was by ordinance without restraint. (laughs) So just imagine this, right? The president, I'll let you put in that place whoever you want, um, offers an executive order and says, hereby, the next week, everybody must drink. But they must drink uh, without restraint. (laughs) (laughs) This is how the king runs his kingdom. He is a fool. Drinking was by ordinance without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each one desired. So not only should you drink as much as you want, you should just do whatever you want. No restraints, nothing. Drink until you can't tell the difference between your, <laughs> what's right and what's wrong. So this king obviously has a few flaws. Um, He, even when you kind of consider the broader ancient Near East, right, the broader ancient Middle East from Egypt to Persia and up to modern day Turkey, there is no kingdom in which this is what people want their king to look like. (laughs) There is no kingdom in which somebody would read this story and say, oh, that's my guy. (laughs) That's our king and we're proud of him. No way. This guy's a fool. So sometimes drinking, whoops, sometimes speaking leads to bad decisions. I almost went over the edge there. I haven't had anything to drink tonight. Um, Sometimes drinking leads to bad decisions. And here comes the bad decision. On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, in other words, when he was plastered, He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbonah, Bigtha, and Agatha, Zathar, and Carcass, just say them confidently and people will believe you. Um, (laughs) The the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti. So these are kind of his advisors. Go bring bring my queen before the king wearing the royal crown in order to show the people and the officials her beauty. Now, There's a rabbinic commentary in which the rabbis wonder about this line, wearing the royal crown. Maybe what he means is only her royal crown. (laughs) Um, So, he wants to show her off, right? What a great idea. I mean, I can't imagine anything somebody would want more but to be shown off before a a, a crowd of drunken men. What a a great idea. This guy is a fool, right? He's a fool. Um, Because she was fair to behold. But Queen Vashti refused, good for her, uh, to come at the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. At this, the king was enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, one of the themes that we're going to notice um, in in the next couple of stories is that when the Bible wants to make fun of a king, they often depict them as, as men who do not have control over their emotions. These are men with big feelings, okay? And mostly, and mostly feelings of anger. They claim to be men who control their kingdoms. They have dominion over the world, and yet they can't control their anger. This is one of the primary ways that the Bible likes to poke fun at rulers. They are tyrants, Rulers of, of kingdoms that can't control themselves. So the king is enraged, and that is uh, absolutely true for Ahasuerus. He, uh, uh, he's very dim-witted, and he can't control what he's feeling. Now, sorry, this is, uh, whoops. Next one is a little bit, lo- uh, the text is a little smaller, so I'll make sure to, to read it loud. Then Memu Khan said, so now they have a crisis, right? The queen said no, and not just no to the king, but publicly Right, the king. You could imagine he's probably talking the whole thing about, "Oh, I'm going to have my queen, my beautiful queen, come parade herself in front of you, and 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 and, and you can admire her beauty, all of you, this drunken horde of of uh, of, uh, of dumb men." And then, uh, 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 but if, but she says no. Imagine the king must have felt a little bit of shame and embarrassment. Then Memu again one of his advisors, said in the presence of the king and the officials, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only to the king, but also to all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. This is not just a crisis for the king. This is a national security crisis, king. You must see it this way. This threatens the entire kingdom. For this deed of the queen will be made known to all the women. The women are going to learn that they can say no to their husbands. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, This will be made known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt at their husbands. Since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come, this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will rebel against the king's officials, and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. It's all coming down. It's DEFCON 4. We better call in the Marines because this whole thing is coming down, right? That, that, this, is, this is how they pitch it to the king. So if it pleases the king... Let another royal order, remember how wise his last one was, uh, to go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be altered that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus as if she would want to, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, vast as it is, all women will give honor to their husbands, High and low alike. These, these, uh, these, these advisors clearly understand how life works. <laughs> 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 clearly understand how uh, marriages work, right? Um, The advice pleased the king. Of course it did because he's a fool. Um, The advice pleased the king and the officials, and the king did as Memukon proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, declaring that every man should be master in his own house. Very good. So you've solved the problem, king. Now, one of the things you'll notice about uh, this story is that that one of the ways that the story tries to uh, caricature or mock uh, Ahasuerus is to show that he, he's, very, um, in, you can he's manipulable. Right? His officials will make all kinds of crazy suggestions to him, and he'll say, yeah, that's a good idea, all you <laughs> officials. He is clearly uh, dim-witted in this story, and, and, and it is intentionally so. Now, all of this really pl- pra- uh, places Esther who is depicted very differently, right, in, in a glorious kind of light. It's the contrast that, that, uh, uh, in, in which she shines uh, so much. So, yes, uh, this king is going to take all kinds of bad advice and is going to uh, listen to his, uh, his advisors, even though in just about every case they have nothing wise uh, to say to him. So, whoops, now it's time to find a new queen. So, who does he turn to? Those brilliant advisors of his who gave him the first idea about how they needed to go save the kingdom from all of the women rebelling against their husbands. Okay, it's time to find a new queen. So what do they do? Um, The advisors say to him, I have an idea. We'll have a beauty pageant. Oh, it's brilliant, and we're going to gather all of the women, all of the young women, and we're going to bring them here to a a, a, a special place. And over a year, they're going to get prepared for their interview with the king. More on that later. Um, I'll just say this, it happens from evening to morning. Um, and, and, and over this year, they're going to marinate in oils and fragrances, and they're going to receive training, no doubt, on court etiquette and how they should act, uh, how they should act before uh, the queen. But they will literally marinate in these oils for months. Once again, brilliant advisors, right? You just couldn't get better advice from these people. And of course, the king offers no protest, He's just, uh, he's there uh, uh, just being uh, pushed along. The turn came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their cosmetic treatment. Six months with oil of myrrh. Six months with perfumes and cosmetics for women. When the young woman went into the king, she was given whatever she asked for to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she went in. Then in the morning, she came back to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She did not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So um, I'll just leave it to your imagination what you think this uh, evening interview is all about. (laughs) But but actually, the whole book of Esther is full of sexual innuendo. It's part of the humor of the book. Um, now, this isn't some kind of modern movie where they try to show all, right? They, they, they allow your imagination to take it where it wants, but you don't have to work too hard to figure out what's going on here. Um, and so, so these, uh, uh, the, you know, he goes through this long process of interviewing all of these, all of these uh, candidates, and ultimately, Esther is the one who wins out. And she uh, will eventually become... Uh, become queen, and uh, she will eventually, along with the help of Mordecai, save her people. Because, as Mordecai says, it may be that she is there for such a time as this. A deeply serious theme, the survival of the Jewish people. A deeply serious theme, uh, a, a young woman having the courage to take her life into her own hands for the sake of her own people, but done in such a way that, uh, that, that the king of Persia is mocked in some pretty profound ways. So the book of Esther is unrelenting in its negative depictions of the Persian king. He's easily manipulated, hedonistic, prone to excessive drinking, easily angered and dim-witted. He is the opposite of the ideal ancient Near Eastern or ancient Middle Eastern king. But the idiocy of the king serves as a stark contrast to Esther, who is wise, courageous and shrewd. And so the humor of the book of Esther, of course, it, it, you know, it makes us laugh and it makes for a good story, but it also has some really deeply serious things to say. Sometimes if you, if you want to say the truth, you need to tell a joke, right? And, and humor has a, isn't it true that humor sometimes has a remarkable way of telling truth? Because one thing about humor is that it's disarming often, and it's, uh, in some ways, the kind of spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. And I think the humor in the Bible often can operate in that way. Okay, I'm just going to, we're going to do one more story here from Daniel, the book of Daniel, uh, in the third chapter. So this, uh, 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 Daniel 3, uh, features Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel doesn't really play a role here. It's just within the, it's within the book of Daniel. Now, one day, whoops. Uh, One day, King Nebuchadnezzar had a golden statue made, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, which he set up at the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, I'm not an engineer, but nine feet by 90 might suggest that it's a little more tottering than towering. (laughs) And and I'll, once again, leave it to your imagination to wonder if the author's trying to make a joke about the shape. So... um, In any case, here's a little bit of the text. Now, oh, 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 sorry, a little bit of context here. Nebuchadnezzar is very proud of this statue. And he says to the people, I want to gather all the people from all around, and I want them to come, and and they're going to hear some music, and and I want them to bow down to this golden statue, this self-aggrandizing golden statue, and uh, it's going to be a big celebration. It's going to be a kind of big liturgy to celebrate this giant stela, this giant monument that I have set up. But, but this, causes, this is the crisis point for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they are themselves Jews, right? They are to worship God alone. So Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors. You're going to notice when you read this chapter, there are a ton of lists that repeat themselves. We don't have time to read through it because it's a long chapter, but go back and read Daniel 3 so you're going to see all these lists. It's part of the author's attempt to mock the kind of bureaucracy of the empire with all of its lists. The counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's the list. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, it insists on reading all of them. The justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, notice all this repetition. The herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of uh, the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, or some might say that he has erected. Okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. So this is where our young heroes find themselves. They are faced with this crisis, and uh, uh, they have to decide, what are we going to do? We know that we're not supposed to bow down and worship anyone but our own God. So they say no. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. Uh, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, and we will not worship the golden statue you have set up. Based on what you know about king so far, how do you think he responded? (laughs) Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. (laughs) I have a three-year-old, so this is like every day. Um, (laughs) He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. These kings cannot control their temper, especially when their pride is involved, right? Um, So, but, but, so they throw them into the fire, right? Maybe you know the story. And the fire is so hot that even the guards that went to put them in there, they, they end up dying too. Because w- when a king's anger gets out of control, it's bad for everybody. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar, but, but okay, so sorry. They, uh, they go into the fire. They're thrown into the fire. And then all of a sudden, a fourth figure, figure appears. One that looks like some kind of deity, looks heavenly. And Nebuchadnezzar is astonished and rose up and said, "Were n't there?" He said, hey, I've done enough math to know. Weren't there three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered, yes, king, that's true. But I see four unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they aren't hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, all those people, and the counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their tunics were not scorched. Not even the smell of fire came uh, uh, was upon them. What, on the one hand, this is a very humorous account uh, that really paints the king in a very negative way. On the other hand, it's a story that while packaged in humor, talks about a God who literally meets them in the fire. A God that meets them in suffering. A God that walks with them through the fire. A God that sees them through to the other side. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is prone to mood swings also. And so he suddenly turns here from... You know, uh, his insistence that everybody bow to now he's going to proclaim the name of the Hebrew God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. He's kind of excessive, you know, and their house is laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So this king is also sort of prone to excesses, prone to mood swings, and he just can't take the middle road. It's like, can you not, you know, sort of, you know, acknowledge the God of Israel without ripping people's arms out? I mean, what, what, is, what is wrong with you? Although somewhat more subdued, Nebuchadnezzar, like the Persian king in Esther, is depicted as uh, emotionally fragile and hot-headed. His pride leads him to erect a ludicrous and self-aggrandizing monument, but this is also a story of repentance and instruction. In the same way that the king can shift on a dime from temperate to enraged, he's also able to recognize the error of his ways and acknowledge that no one can save like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so maybe it's also a, sto- a, a, a kind of morality story for rulers as well. Hey, rulers, with all that power you have, it's pretty easy to want the attention to be on you and, to think, and for you to think that the power and the glory are all yours. But don't forget about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and look at him not only as an example of a warning, but also as an example of repentance, as somebody who was able to uh, change their ways. So, um, the Bible often likes to poke fun at these despots, these kings. But one of the great hopes that we have in Christ is that the last despot that, that the Bible decides to mock is actually death itself. And here we turn to Paul and our conclusion. That death, here Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, there's a misspelling. There is no one F-O-R Bible. It's meant to be, it should say Corinthians, sorry. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is talking about resurrection and finally the end of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. And here Paul engages in full-blown mockery. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It reminds me of when Elijah is on Mount Carmel in his contest with the prophets of Baal. And he says, well, maybe uh, your God has gone off for a journey, and that's why he's not answering your prayer. Paul is doing a similar thing with death itself. And death here becomes the last despot that the Bible calls us to mock. Now, usually in these keynote addresses, as an author, I'm supposed to recommend my own books. But I don't have any to recommend, <laughs> and so I'm gonna, if you are interested in this topic about divine humor, I'm gonna recommend one that just came out in July called Divine Laughter, and it was written by two dear friends of mine, Rolf and Carl Jacobson, both of whom are here in the cities. Um, uh, Rolf and I taught together at Luther Seminary, he also teaches Old Testament, and, uh, and, and Carl lives here in well and well and has served in uh, ministry as a pastor. So uh, they just published this book on divine laughter. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be 10 times better than my talk, so you should definitely go and read it. Uh, It is available now. And so um, we're going to, I think, turn now to questions. Thank you all so much for your time so far.
0: So we are going to turn it to questions in a moment. Uh, but you can rest your voice uh, while I make a few announcements here. Um, thank you very much, by the way. That was delightful. Uh, so I am going to make a few announcements, the first of which is just to remind you of the next Faith and Life event. This is in your programs tonight. Those of you who are online, you can find this on our website. Um, and that will be, we'll get through Christmas and the new year. Um, So it will be in February, February 9th of 2023. Um, This is the one called Faith in YouTube, Reaching the World with Videos. And our speaker will be Dave Robison. Um, I'll say more about him, obviously, at that event. But Dave grew up in California, and he is now a missionary in Japan, where he has started a church. Um, His church is about four people and he reaches about 70,000 people every week through YouTube, who I met, actually, through our own YouTube um, podcast, a weekly thing that you can check out if you're interested, called Reflections on Faith. If you go to YouTube, just search Reflections on Faith. Uh, Dave and I got to know each other through YouTube. Uh, fascinating gentleman. so please join us, uh, again, February 9th, uh, back here in the sanctuary and it will also be online. If you want to be updated about those things, you can ob- obviously follow us on social media. On the Faith and Life website, you can also subscribe to email alerts. And we'll uh, send announcements about our next events. Um, and then I just want to say a few words of thanks. Um, from the very beginning, uh, we were very intentional that we wanted these events to be free and open to the public. Um, and that is not possible, obviously, without the support of, of incredibly generous underwriters and sponsors uh, who are, men, are listed, and I hope we do have all of them listed, um, uh, who wanted to be listed anyway. In the program, I'm not going to mention all of them, but I will lift up at least our corporate underwriters, which are Crossroads Financial Group, Cressa, Ulrich Real Estate, Malley Design, Augio, Productivity Inc., Rapid Packaging, and Mastercraft labels, and then all of the individuals you see indicated there. Many of them are here in the sanctuary or watching online. Will you please help thank them for making these events possible? I also want to say a word to Jeff Elstad. We have our screen up tonight, which is a little unusual. Just before we uh, began the program tonight, uh, Michael said, oh, there's actually a live musician here. uh, Because he couldn't see him because the screen was blocking him. So Jeff has been with us from the very beginning. Jeff, thank you, as always, for your wonderful music. And then um, the final. Thank you, and I hope I'm not forgetting to say anything else. Um, One of the questions that I get all the time is where do you come up with the ideas for uh, these speakers? In the case of tonight's speaker, um, I want to be sure to thank my dear colleague, Valerie Strand Patterson, who is actually sitting in the narthex. She has a little bit of a cough. um, Who has hosted, as he said, uh, Michael, for I think two or three three women's retreats, 700 What? (laughs) She's correcting me back there. St. John's John's retreats, excuse me. Three St. John's retreats. Is that correct now? Okay. thank you. Um, And I know that there are a number of folks from those retreats who are here tonight. So uh, thank you, Valerie, for the suggestion. Uh, You all obviously enjoyed having him, and I understand why. Uh, So I'm going to turn it back. To Michael, um, again, if you have questions, uh, if you're here in the sanctuary, please come to one of the mics so everyone can hear it. And uh, hopefully, if we have any online and pointing people in the sound room, uh, they will send them to me, and I will ask them. So, Michael, can I ask you to come back up and respond to any questions?
1: The first question is always hard to work up the courage for. Yeah, and would you mind using the mic just so that folks online can hear you? That will help them a lot. Thank you.
0: Uh, not so much a question, but just a comment that uh, Esther pretty much sacrificed herself to a blithering idiot yeah. to save her, her uh, tribe, her people. Yeah. So I, I just thought that, that struck me that I hadn't thought of it that way. Because yeah. I, th- I was thinking that this king and Esther was such a great, great person. Yeah. Without you pointing this out. So it's pretty funny.
1: Yeah. So. You're right. She nearly sacrifices. Like she, she lays it all on the line. You're right about that. And, and that's the other thing that a lot of these kind of film depictions miss is just how much of a buffoon uh, Al Hashbaros is. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. You're right. As a former Cobber and as a parent of Cobbers, how do you take humor like this and introduce
0: or expand the desire to study the Bible
1: with just,
0: I want to call them children, but
1: young adults oh, it's such a good question. You know, the the Bible, one of the challenges that we have with young adults is that the Bible doesn't have a very good reputation. (laughs) Um, And maybe a better way of saying is that the, the, the people that use the Bible often have a really bad reputation. And I think sometimes the topic of humor can help to reintroduce the Bible in a different kind of way, especially when you see, you know, a book like Esther that really is... Uh, dealing with some pretty body material, you know, and and, and dealing and and, and joking uh, 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 about uh, some pretty serious things, I think it can potentially form a bridge um, and potentially give a person a different on-ramp into those texts. Because the truth is we have a lot of kids these days who look at the sort of the faith of their ancestors, the faith of their parents, and they just say, not for me. Now, what I want to make clear is that this generation is not saying, I don't want to ask the questions about religion and spirituality. They are deeply engaged with questions of ultimate meaning, spirituality, and uh, um, uh, sort of the mystical side of the cosmos. But often the way that they seek those questions out looks really, is in some ways, unrecognizable to us. So my hope, you know, is that kind of reading the Bible in this manner can at least provide a little bit of a bridge for somebody who might... uh, Otherwise, think about the Bible as some, I, as, as some dusty old book that sometimes gets used to hit people over the head
0: with. Yeah. We, we do actually have an online question. Oh, and thank you again to those of you who Thanks are for the question. joining us online. Um, this one is, can you talk a little about how humor is culturally bound yeah. or how it's so difficult to translate?
1: No, this is actually this is a great question. That, that one of the challenges with... Any kind of humor, in fact, I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell a self-deprecating story to, to make this point. I, we lived in Finland for a year, and, and I was working at the University of, of Helsinki. And part of my job was to teach some undergraduate classes. And as you can tell, like, jokes are a pretty important part of how I teach. Um, not just from the text, but, you know, sort of stand up and teaching go together for me. Um, and I failed so badly of <laughs> trying to teach these Finnish students because I would try to sort of use my humor. And there are like 75 college students who probably are pretty happy people normally, you know, like probably pretty easy to get a laugh out of. Crickets. You know, <laughs> I just could not figure out a way to make it work. And part of it's because culture, uh, humor is often so culture-bound. And so uh, that's why sometimes I think it does get lost in translation. Um, and but also, I would emphasize that most of these texts were written to be read or performed, right? Oral culture, uh, with literacy rates probably under ten percent, and so how it's read matters. And I think often, you know, I, I when we when we are kind of reading texts from here, we're sort of reading them in very monotonous ways. But I think. We use our imaginations a little bit, inflect the text a little bit. I think we'll often find that the Bible is a little bit more humorous than we often might think.
0: Good question to our so, online friends, yeah. So related, um, you, you addressed some of this, Michael, but um, can you talk a little bit about the, the ability of, of stories to convey truth, regardless of whether the story stories actually Happened, And Jonah, of course, would be an example of that. Jesus' parables would be yes. examples of that, right? So yeah. can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I
1: sometimes like to, to make a distinction with, with students between fact and truth. And so we'll, let's start with the parables. Um, you all, I'm sure some of, most of you are aware of the parable of the prodigal son, right? And I use this parable because it's a parable that I think most people look at and say that says something very true about our God. Right about a God that welcomes us back after we have squandered our gifts, a God that 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 uh, that runs to be with us uh, yeah, even though we uh, uh, have run away from, from God, and that is a beautiful story about the God that uh, about the God that finds us even when we are lost. But the truth of that story is does not depend on whether there was a real father you know, or a real son or a real or, or a real older brother or younger brother. Jesus never claims that there was. It's a parable. It's a symbolic story that is meant to say something true about God. And so what the parables show us is that we can differentiate between truth and fact. And uh, truth can be told in many different ways. I can talk to my, my daughters or my wife and say, you are a beautiful rose, or something like that. And nobody thinks I'm offering some kind of biological description, right? Um, it's, it's, it's metaphorical language that is nonetheless true. And I think um, sometimes we get tripped up in, in, uh, in stories when we, when we assume that in order for a story to be true, it must also be factual. And the Bible, I think, is filled with many, uh, many stories many poems that are true but not factual. So, I don't know if that gets to the question.
0: Other question: Don't leave here saying to yourself, oh, I wish I would have asked him this. Thank you. (laughs) All right, here we go. Very good.
1: Can you recommend more readings of the humor in the New Testament? Versus the old. So this is this is actually a point where I am a little bit deficient, to be honest. Um, I, I referenced, right, the one text out of 1 Corinthians 15. Here I will point you to uh, the Brothers Jacobson um, in their book, uh, Divine Laughter, because they cover actually both Testaments in that book. I, uh, and so I would, I would recommend that you read that book. It's very, very affordable um, and, and available now. And so, um, yeah, on the New Testament side, I'm just honestly not as... Well studied there, but they in their book will argue that there is quite a bit of humor there in the New Testament. So, yeah. What was the name of that book? Again? Uh, it, uh, it is. I'm going to get it for you exactly. Divine laughter. <clears throat> there is a subtitle there, but it it, it uh, is hard to read. <laughs> but just just go to Amazon and type type in Jacobson S O N uh, Divine laughter, and you'll find it. It's an Augsburg Fortress publication. Yes, sir.
0: My question is, what is the bottom line that you would like for us to take away from tonight's? Thank you. That is a
1: great question. And here I'm going to return to my original goal. Sorry? Okay, there we go. That you will leave tonight believing that humor is an integral part of how the Bible talks about God and this world and human life and that humor is also the mark of a holy people. Uh, Just as it was for Paul in 1 Corinthians that Paul literally, literally laughs in the face of death. And why would he do that? Because he knows, right, that in baptism, he's already died. What allows Paul to laugh And to talk to death in the way that Jesus talked to demons. It is that he has already faced death. It's that he knows, come hell or high water, there is nothing on this earth that can separate him from the love of God. And when you know that, you can laugh. And you can laugh in the joy uh, and and, and delight, knowing that that the Heavenly Father smiles with radiant joy upon each one of you and upon all of us. So that's that's my hope, uh, what you'll leave tonight with.
0: Thanks for that question. I yeah. do appreciate that. And that seems like a good place to end. Don't applaud wildly quite yet, because <laughs> um, I want to come up and uh, say again thank you to all of you for coming out uh, on what is becoming a colder Minnesota night. Thank you to those of you who have joined us online. I know we had a lot of folks joining us, and we're so grateful for your presence. Michael, I'm delighted you. that you took an evening to be with us. We've been looking. Forward to this for a long time. and We have a small gift, oh, um, a token of appreciation. This is a little granite plaque that says, "With thanks to Michael Chan for bringing faith to life," and we do thank, thank you, you so very, you very much. Very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.